You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Ross McKay, the CEO and founder of Daring, the leading plant-based chicken brand on a mission to remove chicken from the global food system. After years of product development alongside researchers and food scientists in the UK, Ross launched Daring Foods in the US in early 2020. It can now be found in over 11,000 stores across the US, including Sprouts, Whole Foods, Albertsons, Target, and Walmart, along with hundreds of restaurants and food service outlets. Welcome, Ross. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. I appreciate the introduction. Excited to be here. Yay. Um, So let's talk plant chicken. And I think the whole plant-based sort of meat ecosystem, obviously there are a lot of opinions. There's a lot of thoughts. There's, you know, I think die hard, the whole, you know, meat industry is going to be gone. And then there are people who are sort of like, you know, I don't know, there's so many players. I would really just like your assessment sort of at a high level of the dynamics, um, because there's still new brands coming up all the time and there's still new consumer insights happening all the time. So I would love someone who like lives and breathes it to just sort of give your, uh, your summary a little bit of just all the dynamics of, of the whole category in a way. Great. Great. First question. I will try my very best. (laughs) And if it takes you 10 minutes, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, ho- ho- hopefully it doesn't. Um, and I'm sure we'll dive into some of these points more sp- specifically. However, yeah. I think at a very high level, um, personally, and I'm sure many other founders within the space, uh, building you know plant-based brands, you know, start the, these companies, this company, Daring, from a personal mission. So the reason to exist for me and I'm sure other brands you know, will never go away. Fundamentally, mm-hmm. we believe in uh, impacting the food system for, for better, impacting human health and, of course, animal welfare. And there's plenty of data out there to show um, that there needs to be an alternative solution, uh, alternative t- solution to animal agriculture, especially mm-hmm. center of the plate, like chicken. I'll start there. Um, yep. You know, we've been told for a long, long time, you know, to stop eating meat by many extremely smart people. Um, but fundamentally, you know, our appetite for chicken, beef, fish continues to grow. Um, so it's really up to brands like Daring to create tasty, healthy alternatives. Now, um, recently, you know, the market has faced tremendous headwinds, uh, opinions on, is this really healthier for you? Um, Mm -hmm. several large early movers in the space preached health yet created products with 40, 50, 60 ingredients. Often those ingredients, nor you or I understood or believed in either. So I think it's going to take some time to innovate um, on better for you products that will truly change consumer habits uh, and opinions towards the category and eventually price also. And that's a whole Mm -hmm. other conversation itself. But um, I think, you know, any great category, any impactful category that raises capital attracts eyes pr um brands rush to the space as well mm-hmm. and um plant-based has been a, a, a an attractive um area and category within consumer for uh investment and uh, you know that's created a lot of brands and products to come to market probably far too quickly and in an inferior yep. manner so um yep. 
listen, I'm plant-based. I uh, started this from a personal mission and I fundamentally believe that um, it's going to take some time, but there will always be uh, a reason to exist for a better for you, healthier plant-based brand. Yeah. No. And I think that, you know, I don't know about you. I feel like, okay, this is a little esoteric and we don't know each other very well, but I'm just going to dig right in there. I feel like, um, there's been in the last several weeks between the cost of eggs and, you know, just basic, you know, inflation and grocery prices. And I think the consumer has kind of hit a little bit of an anger threshold. And there, I think I'm nervous that the consumer is going to sort of group shrinkflation and, um, you know, the trouble they're having at the supermarket with just every food brand, you know, just sort of like get angry at the better for you movement because, you know, it always goes back to it's only for a certain demographic and it's, you know, pie in the sky, you know, people who don't understand how real people eat. And there, there's been this sort of like refrain I mean, since, I mean, people were doing better for you food in the seventies as a response to the garbage that got introduced (laughs) into the food system post-war. Um, are you feeling that? Like, do you feel like your category has gotten dinged a little bit by a prices B sort of maybe too many brands and too much hoopla? Like, are you, are your spidey senses up at all or? No, do you see this as a great opportunity? No, I see it as a great opportunity, but I also see the data that price continues to be one of the biggest barriers to entry for this to create stickiness. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think fundamentally texture, taste, health, and price in that order have been looked at, and price is really the one that most brands have continued to struggle with. There's a reason for that, I think. Yeah. the plant-based industry is tiny Um, within plant-based meat and then within plant-based chicken, even smaller Um, compared to its animal derived alternative industry. You know, chicken, it's a hundred billion plus look at plant-based chicken. It's several hundred million. Mm -hmm. Um, The infrastructure is not built out. Um, The supply chain is few and far between There's actually almost no manufacturers in the U S domestically that can do plant-based meat, pat breading, packing, flavoring, you name it, slicing and dicing yeah. under one ha- under one house. It doesn't exist, almost doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and I go into that just simply because, you know, when you're moving product from one manufacturer to the other and you're not vertically integrating, it comes with obviously cost and, uh, and fees. So therefore price on shelf. Uh, I think there's a misconception that that, 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 that healthy, uh, price is going into a brand like ours's pocket when actually the margins are razor thin. Um, yeah. I just wrote this. Uh, yeah, I so, literally yeah. just wrote yeah. this article. Well, because I think also there's a, the question isn't why is this expensive, but more, why is meat so cheap? Right. And yeah. it's because of all of the subsidies and all of the sort of like policy that has been, you know, in effect in this country for 80 years. Um, yeah. But, you know, people don't ask that. And when we turn it on its head like that, it looks like we're being elitist, which, you know, is part of the article I wrote. So, yeah. but I think going back to your point about, um, you know, your texture happens to be amazing. We just did a partnership with you guys. We love doing partnerships with you guys. I happen to love the product and it goes really well with our sauce. So that's really fun. Um, But I did read your, you know, I think on another, in another interview, you talked about sort of this, you know, if you're going from one manufacturer to another, to another for three different steps of a supply chain, I mean, it doesn't take an economist to know that that adds a lot of costs and eats away at margin, especially with freight being what freight has been. Um, How are you, are you able to take a stab at that? Is that 
you know, I mean, I would imagine it's something you're actively working on. Is it something that's, you know, working out? Yeah. And in terms of your question more specifically, our manufacturing strategy, um, we um, currently the setup is internal R&D innovation in-house at our Mm -hmm. LA office, Culver City. And then a super asset light model utilizing co-manufacturers in uh around the world um some of those are not not domestic some of them are european based some of them are us based but your point is exactly right you know our we're currently utilizing our best options it's not the best option however we are and have been continuously investing into um both assets and integration of the supply chain to bring that down under one house. Now we will, we will not own manufacturing that right. is not in our destiny, not right now. Um, yeah. but we've had to take several steps to, um, you know, both create exciting narrative and volume opportunities yep. for manufacturers to take a bet on us. I want to pause you there because I think for people who are earlier stage, it's yeah. important to go into this because, you know, everyone who knows me knows that like one of the things that we did very early on was no one in America had pouch filling and high pressure pasteurization. I could not find a co-packer to make our product. We searched high and low. What we ended up doing was partnering with a co-packer who had the more expensive machine basically, and, you know, made a deal with them where they got a percentage of the company for building us that supply chain. So, I just want people hearing this, you know, to understand that there is something in between, like Ross just said, going to a co-packer, being at the mercy of the co-packer or plural, which I think a lot of people in the last several months I've been hearing, they're getting kicked off the lines. Their toll just went up 3x out of the blue. They're just being told, sorry, we can't make it. Um there's something in between that and building a factory, which, you know, we also know people in the industry that have done that. And that's, that just requires a, a, a lot of money and, and there's labor involved and there's, it's a whole different business, but there are hybrids. Yeah, there's hybrids for sure. And I I think um, few have built brands and built, manufacturing a few have done it right. well i mean chobani um yeah. uh, Oatly, you know albeit recently you know shifted yeah. out of that um i think it takes billions of dollars and i mean billions yeah. because you have to build a manufacturing plate which can cost let's just say you know several tens of million dollars or mm-hmm. even more um depending on the, the product you need to um build the brand too you have to build right. a category, you have to build awareness, you have to spend money on SGNA, marketing, yep. you have to build a team, you have to, you know, raise, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to do both. So what I always say is choose which one you want to be. You want right. to be a manufacturer, you want to be a That's brand. Good. If you want to be both, be okay, build raising a ton of money. And mm-hmm. in the current market, I would say that is less likely for many brands because line of sight profitability when you're building manufacturing with low volumes is going to be very far away. So the hybrid yep. model works. You have to, of course, find partners like you and hopefully I have done to um, get them excited about the opportunity and more. And and, and I think, you know, there, there's um, there's easier products out there than what you and I have done. Not mm-hmm. saying that any product is easy in any category, but I think, you know, potentially we picked two of the hardest things to yeah. create. You, you looked at a space that no one had done before and the way we make our plant-based chicken did not exist. So, right. Um, you know, I think it's uh, specific there, but you're you're right. You know, tolling fees across the board, line time um, for small brands like you and I are 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 hard to come by. Aww. It's so nice that you include us with you. You're a bigger brand than us, but I appreciate. It. I like no, you know I, being grouped. We're, you're you know, it's like I don't know if you if you have like a, this might just be a purely American system, but they're like for the alumni fund, do you want to donate one to $50 or 50 to a hundred dollars? And I'm always like, yeah. Oh, you know, I'll do 51 and you know, yeah. like puts you in like the bigger group, but you're at the, anyway. No, I think, I think the point being is you, you're doing something that 
necessarily hadn't been done before and you're moving yes. the envelope and pushing it forward and that's you know essentially what we're doing plant-based chicken existed before we came along i mean we weren't the first right. to do it we just tried to do it differently and in our opinion yeah. better but sauce existed right yeah no i know and, and in, in my opinion too i i'd like to go in a little bit specifically if you don't mind because i think this is going to be really helpful okay so basically what we're sort of saying is hey early stage founder you might want to consider, you know, getting a co-packer to really buy in as opposed to having it be a purely transactional relationship. One of the ways that you can get them to buy in is ownership, right? One of the ways you can do it is this is going to be, okay, you're going to give us maybe a break on the toll, but you're going to, the volume, look at the volume, like look at what's about to happen. Were there any other sort of, um, carrots that you used a little bit to get co-packers excited? Mm. I mean, how did you kind of approach them, I guess, on a, on a, yeah. you know, basic level? I would say, like um, we just like hit the ground running. Yeah, it was like, hi, nice yeah. to meet you. Let's get really, really <laughs> nitty gritty. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. <laughs> okay. I think, listen, I, I want to be, um, generic here manufacturers care about one thing throughput like Mm -hmm. they make money on tolling like uh, you know it's nice to have equity um i think specifically for your question i'm going to take this as i'm an early brand minimal um volume yet um very hard to forecast my business because uh, there's very little sales data data but you know, I can go to a manufacturer and guarantee them volumes if I have the money in the bank to take on take or pay fees or, you know, whatever volume commitments I'm comfortable with without getting out of your skis. I would say to anyone listening to this, don't get mm-hmm. over your skis. Don't promise manufacturers volumes that you don't feel 100% confident in because right. markets change, categories change, retailers launch you six months later, they push, you know, mm-hmm. products out, it, it gets messy and, and, it, and that can ruin your business. Um, right. But I would say manufacturers care about throughput. Um, mm-hmm. So it's very hard to be like, we're going to be great in two, three years. Take a bet on That's us nice. because right. it is just harder. Uh, we we have strategic partners in our business. We have some of the largest poultry manufacturers in the world who personally are have invested in daring. So mm-hmm. there are some strategic opportunities for us to lean in on the supply chain. Um and, um, you know, I think there's, there's upside and obviously the business longer term, but it, it is, it is, it is hard. It's really about creating mm-hmm. a, a, a great narrative about the opportunity on, on, on the trajectory of the volume and hopefully, uh, being able to incentivize a manufacturer that you are the brand they should take a bet on because two, right. three, four years down the line, the you're going to be, you know, pumping volume. Mm-hmm. I always called it project. I've got the looks you've got the brains <laughs> yeah. you know the song like i've got the brains you've got the looks yeah, yeah. but you know that song so of i always course. kind of positioned it to the co-packer is like i've got you know kind of like what you said there's brand and there's manufacturing and the way yeah. that i positioned it early on was you know you don't need me right like you're you're doing amazing you're doing amazing with a category that is seeing a lot of innovation and a lot of exciting development. And maybe you want a piece of that as, you know, a part of the opportunity. Um, And, you know, I think now, especially a couple months ago, I had um, Jessie Freitag on and she was talking about, you know, for those of you talking to co-packers, you really do want to go super buttoned up. You never want to write an email that's like, hey, I'm curious if you can help me figure out how to make X, Y, Z. Like they will likely not return that email. Um, but if nope. you go and and it's, and it's, I mean, in a lot of ways, do you feel like it was kind of like the way that you were pitching investors you know, you're, you're trying to create sort of a sense of momentum and excitement. Yeah, I think so. Momentum for us was super important at the time. Um, we had some fairly early success and uh, also my industry, it 
seen some success from, you know, um, growth numbers and albeit from zero because there wasn't much of an industry in 2019, but, um, within plant-based meat, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, approaching co-packers, they, they really want you to be buttoned up. The way you show up to a co-packer is super important. Mm Co-manufacturer, way you show up in general is obviously super important, but you know, when someone's choosing between you and another brand or multiple other brands, then, you know, it's nice to feel like you, you, you have your your ducks in a row. Um, Mm -hmm. I would recommend making sure you have some sort of, uh, base case for what volumes look like. That's very important. Like what are your volumes look like per skew or you know, per whatever, um, across the next one, two, three years. And, and mm-hmm. obviously, you know, base case, if things go great minus plus, and, and, and that's a fairly basic model that any funder should have, um, for their business, but be willing yeah. to share that. Um, obviously, um, protecting yourself from an IP perspective, making sure that there's some, um, ownership within the formulas or, or, mm-hmm. um, it's a really good formulas point. that you're creating. Um, definitely important. Um, for the longevity of a business, yeah. um, more specifically to investors. Yeah. That's a, that's a whole other story. We take yeah. hours um, conversing on that, but I think it's important to just have your business lined up. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you brought up the IP thing because there are these like horror stories out there of, you know, I mean, there's sort of like cautionary tales. I don't know anyone who this has actually happened to, but there's sort of these like, how did you hear the, one about, you know, if you don't have ownership and your IP isn't yours, that product could end up white labeled at Trader Joe's, you know, pretty easily and quickly. So I think that's a really good point about owning, especially if you have something that's different or something unique. That's a good point. And I always forget it. Um, so thanks for bringing yeah. that up. I think it's, you know, it doesn't, people always disregard or, or maybe think when they hear the words IP, it's really this crazy, you know, patent intellectual property that's, um, you know, in this, some black book, you really just have to own your formulas. If there's mm-hmm. an exit in the, on the horizon for your business, that'll be important. The brand will be very important. Um, but if someone was to internalize your manufacturing process, they want to know how to keep that product the exact same. Um, right. not have to go through the, the, you know, Coke 2.0, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And when, when, <laughs> when they have to figure it out themselves. So, um, yeah. just owning that and making sure that's protected is going to be important, um, for your business, not just an exit, but just for your own, uh, mm-hmm. your own safety. Yeah. No, great point. Um, okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, we're going to talk about frozen, refrigerated food service, all sorts of fun stuff. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheese-making traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheese-making culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheese-making craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm back with Ross McKay, founder of Daring. Um, Okay, so we got pretty hardcore into ops very quickly. I don't think I even meant to do that, but I'm glad we did. I want to talk a little bit about um, merchandising um, because, you know, I've had different, you know, nobody in the chicken world, but... um, I've had, you know, whether it's actual veggies or, you know, Seth from, you know, beyond the idea of where these things get merchandised is not as obvious or 
clear as it might be. I mean, we, I, I don't know how much you know about us, Ross, but one of our big sort of hurdles is that, um, you know, where does fresh sauce in a pouch go? Is it dairy? Is it produce? It's different from natural channel to conventional, even within certain stores, those places are in different areas of the store. There isn't just a clear place. And I think then you add this layer of plant-based where, you know, a few years ago, every merchandiser was trying to figure out what that set was. Is it just plant-based cheese and, you know, tofu and kimchi? Is it anything that kind of goes with that? Who owns that? So there's like this whole ecosystem. But specifically for you guys, it looks to me like you launched in, you know, where people sort of expect to see nuggets, essentially frozen, but you are doing something in fresh with sprouts. Is that right? Yeah, we we launched um, within frozen. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty much all brands and um, the whole plant-based category was really built in frozen for, right. for, for alternative meats. I think Impossible were the first ones to really take a in the butcher take a stab yeah. yeah and i think just egg as well obviously doing you know uh, positioning itself beside egg um i think um early early data showed that that was exciting um customers who essentially were buying chicken had the option to look left or right and see an alternative solution to their traditional animal protein i think mm-hmm. the narrative is exciting we're going after chicken lovers where did chicken lovers shop they, they right. shop not in the frozen section they right. shop in the chicken aisle, you know, 80% plus of, um, chicken sold is boneless, skinless, fresh meat. And, you know, for us to achieve our mission, we have to go after it. It's a little bit harder said than done because of the right. R and D the supply chain. And obviously the expectations within that category are much more benchmarked against, um, the products in the set, you know, and they turn a lot quicker. Plant-based chicken might turn at, you know, X, you know, units a week per store, which is a very important metric. If you're listening right. to measure your business, it's very much a holy grail. Um, one of the metrics in retail, but ch- chicken turns out 40, 50, 60, 80 times that units per, wow. store, uh, right. per week. So it's going to be harder. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So even though it's a higher velocity area, you're being benchmarked against much higher velocity yeah. skews. And that could actually be a problem, not an asset. That could be a problem. And I think right. what we've seen um brands have tried it we have tried it we've we've not seen it cannibalize our frozen area but we haven't seen the lift that we potentially thought we would so you know for us right now we're going to create more innovation that will sit outside of the freezer but the freezer actually the freezer category is growing at a much faster turn than the fresh so um you know it's an it's an exciting narrative when you think about oh you know daring chicken launches in fresh beside chicken but fundamentally what we've seen is consumers aren't saying Mm -hmm. you know I'm going to buy chicken and then, oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to shift my right. opinion at, at, at the store. If you want plant-based yep. chicken, you're probably going to that aisle and you're probably looking for it. And um, yeah. that's something that we've tried and tested and that's important to do. It is. And it's really interesting because I was just having this conversation with someone, you know, consumer behavior. I don't know about you, maybe, I might be projecting, but I think founders in general, especially mission-driven founders, we, I I don't, I don't know that we under, I think we might underestimate consumer habit a little more than we should. And that, and that's probably a good thing because, you know, there has to be a part of us that really thinks we can change the world (laughs) in a way to, to launch these companies and to make these products. But there is just a, there is a way that consumers shop and that changes from like store to store. I just had Amber Byland who, who, you know, was veteran salesperson on last week. And she was saying like your expectations, even from, you know, channel to channel are very different. The way that you expect to engage with food and the team and the environment in a Whole Foods is different from a Walmart. And then there's a lot in between. 
And then you even add another layer to your point, which is where do I go to find this thing? And, and, you know, I would like, I don't, I, I always say, why do I need to be in plant-based? I'm not, I'm just a chimichurri sauce. What, you know, I just happen to be vegan, but I don't have to be, but that tends to be where that sort of innovation better for you, fun new products tends to live. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it is a, it is a tricky, it's a tricky ecosystem when you don't have something straightforward that consumers are really used to. That's just like a, here's a cereal with sugar. Here's a cereal without sugar, just right next to it. And often the price is, you know, let's just say it's 25 to a hundred percent more expensive than the, you know, more traditional option that's been on the shelf for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, given current climate and, you know, price can be an important barrier in certain stores, right. um, you know, natural and conventional, again, very different. Um, I think what is important to, to do is to be a thought partner to retail buyers, yeah. you know, why, why this matters and why, um, I'm the brand to help you figure this out. You know, what yeah. we've tried to do and what I would say we've done fairly well is to really be that thought partner to a, a Walmart, to be a, to a Whole Foods. You know, this is mm-hmm. why plant-based matters, and this is why daring matters to plant-based. And at the end of the day, um, if you're if you're fortunate enough and and you can can create success stories within other retailers, showing the growth you're adding to that category, showing the growth you're adding to you know um, dollars per store per week to mm-hmm. the Whole Foods plant-based shelf, taking that to another store and saying, hey, you're missing out. We're actually adding incremental value to your set. Um, right. Now you have to succeed and you have to, well, succeed is longer term, but you have to perform. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of people are still figuring out, you know, where they grip plant-based, where they grip plant-based mm-hmm. meat. Um, well, I think longer term, if you were to ask me, you didn't, there will be a consolidation. Um, yeah. And I think only a few brands will matter. Um, yeah. and that's the reality of most categories. Um, yeah. let's be very honest. You know, there isn't yeah. hundreds and hundreds of brands. There's, there's often fewer. Yep. Speaking of Walmart. Um, so two things that I read that I thought were really interesting. One is that you didn't really set out to make a retailer like channel brand. You really wanted to start off in food service. <laughs> like, is True. that, True. Okay. So I think that's awesome. Um, and then the second is, you know, you were in Walmart pretty early, so I kind of want to talk about that because people are really, really confused about Walmart. Um, so let's talk about food service first. I gather that COVID probably put a little wrench in the plan to be in restaurants across the country um, but why mm-hmm. did you want to start that way? And what was the thinking and how did you kind of shift and how did that happen? Yeah, no, we, we did. We were one, one SKU, one channel, um, daring original pieces, uh, in fit service. Um, I think at the time we had a plan to be a 20 pound case and we go through traditional food service distributors to access that market. Why we'd seen it work very, very well um with uh impossible foods um mm-hmm. they penetrated the food service market um when they launched um yep. you know can't speak to their strategy but i think it's actually worked very well especially creating mm-hmm. that sort of halo top effect driving retail sales um you know i learned right. about many brands given their you know distribution at a at a restaurant branded it mm-hmm. was really cool and then i wanted to cook it myself and go to the retailer and buy it etc yep. but you're right. You know, selling, uh, selling anyone plant-based, um, is sometimes hard. Try doing it when everyone's, you know, closing down and the world is, um, going through, um, what it went through or is going through, uh, beginning of 2020. So right. we have to be, we have to pivot, like, you know, uh, creates a whole other conversation about, you know, the pattern recognition of entrepreneurs, but pivoting and being nimble and taking that product and packing it differently. And, just being, you know, uh, malleable is super important. And and I was fortunate enough to come across uh, a retail buyer who was interested in taking a meeting and we shifted our strategy right away. I didn't have pricing, didn't have a mm-hmm. retail deck, I didn't have retail packaging, but we had a great product and the reason to exist yeah. you know, was still there. So we pivoted and 
you know, I think about 46,000 uh, total distribution points today, over 11,000 doors after two yeah. years of launching. We have gone no, that's amazing. very, yeah, we have gone very aggressive, very, very quickly. Um, we're in, you know, like you said, we're in air one to a 4,176 Walmarts with right. four SKUs. <laughs> um, I think we're shy of 20. Um, and that wasn't out of, um, just an appetite to just for just, you know, uh, crazy growth. There was just mm-hmm. a shift, I think, and this is personal opinion, a shift, I think, in consumer, you know, uh, habits during COVID of what was important. I think mm-hmm. the blurry line between natural and conventional, um, yep. Whole Foods isn't what it was five years ago, 10 years ago, and Walmart isn't what it was five years, 10 years ago. We're seeing this convenience being more important than anything um, through online delivery platforms like Instacart and other. And I think just being available was super important during COVID. Um, So thankfully, with the help of our retail team, we were able to navigate that and we perform extremely well in Walmart. We have a great relationship with them and of course, our other retailers. But um, again, it all tracks back to... And this is important because as a brand, yeah, for sure, as a brand, understanding who you want to be. We want to be chicken made from Mm -hmm. plants. We don't want to be a niche premium product that only should sit in, you know, one or two accounts. Mm -hmm. We want to remove chicken from the food system. Walmart sell a lot of chicken. Um, But I would say if you were to start a brand today, making sure that, growing deeper in retailers and performing in the natural space first, if you're a plant-based yep. brand is important, you know, yep. that is going to be important and making sure that you can succeed there before you go to Walmart, because it is a completely different beast. Yeah. And I mean, there are two things that I'm sure you've thought of, but one is I think daring also is a really good, in terms of COVID, you had these two conflicting sort of like consumer behaviors. One is the need for comfort and things that reminded them of like a simpler, happier time, a la, you know, being a kid. And the other is trying to do little things that made them feel like they were taking care of themselves. So if you match those two things together, you basically get you, right? Like, you know, my family... I have, you know, I think everyone knows I have five teenagers. Um, They're kind of aging out of teenagerhood, but teenagers to me are anyone younger than 23. So (laughs) it's not exactly a numerical thing. But like, you know, there was something about just like making a whole sheet tray of nuggets and like everyone, you know, just, I don't know, having happy family time during, you know, this crazy situation that's, you know, still to your point going on, but there was also something about, I wanted to make them a little bit better because I didn't want to fall into the slump of, okay, now we're just going to eat crap, you know, for the rest of lockdown. So it's kind of neat. I mean, I'm sure you know this, but it, it just kind of occurred to me that it, yeah, there are very few foods that are, both nostalgia and better for you and yeah for sure life under the cloud of COVID-19 had definitely intensified the search for you know healthier products Mm -hmm. um and you know I had no sacrifice to what we all love and enjoy every day so you know that is chicken people love chicken and they love love uh, breading it Mm -hmm. and dipping it in sauce and um, you know, frying it and, and, and whatever else they, they enjoy doing. So I think fundamentally that is why we, we do exist. We want to, you know, give people that same nostalgia that they get from a breaded wing or a piece mm-hmm. of grilled chicken on a salad or whatever it may be, the versatility. Um, but hopefully with um, an underlying health narrative that is, right. you know, have us once a week instead of the, you know, seven mm-hmm. to 10 times that you eat chicken and you can have a great impact. So yeah. Um, yeah, it yeah. Is, uh, it's, it's an exciting uh, opportunity for us. And it makes a lot of sense, too, when you were talking about the launch plan. You know, I always brag about the fact that I was one of the first cafes in New York to have Oatly. Um, and I don't know if you remember this, but there was like 
the great Oatly shortage of whatever 2018. I had Mike Messersmith on the podcast talking about, and he actually like physically started sweating, just like talking about the time where, you know, they had, they had production issues. And I had people offering the baristas at my cafe, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, you know, just for uh, the, the, you know, little half court of Oatly that we had behind the counter. Like people were going crazy. Um, But I think to your point, when you have a product where if you have like an impossible burger or Oatly is a good example too, when you can build food service in a way that it does build the brand as opposed to food service, which is just, you know, unbranded and volume. Because I think to your point earlier about you have to kind of decide, are you a producer or are you a brand? I think on some level, emerging brands also have to decide is this a brand play or a volume play, right? Yeah. Because you have um, limited yeah, resources, you, right? Yeah, you do. Um, you know, what happened to Oatly, I think, is is, um, is, is a unicorn probably experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, it's hard to, um, you know, forecast or even um, get ahead of that demand. It was just, uh, it was it was awesome to watch and amazing yeah. for the industry. And they really built that and, Browns were built off the back of that. And when they couldn't supply, in came Califia Farms and, you know, other brands to kind of fill that void mm-hmm. with other great products. So, um, but yeah. I think your, your point is correct. You know, you really have to uh, build a brand. This is not a commodity. This is not plant chicken. Um, right. This is this daring is chicken. And if you're mm-hmm. able to tell the narrative of how you can perform branded versus unbranded, for us, it's 10 to 1. If your restaurant yeah. sells daring chicken and that same restaurant sells plant chicken with a asterisk on the sea or whatever it may be um mm-hmm. you know it's 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 10 percent. there's a high it's 10 to 1 daring branded outsells unbranded 10 to 1 and I mean, we have that sweet. data and we'll go to a retailer yeah. or a restaurant and say you know here you go the other exciting story in that space is often um, many national restaurant chains scale quicker than retail chains mm-hmm. um you know look at restaurants like you know, the, the, the biggest, like a Starbucks or a Chipotle, mm-hmm. they're adding hundreds and hundreds of stores every year. Yeah. Um, sometimes even more. Um, you know, expansion plans of a national chain might be to double from 50 to 100. It's very rare that, you know, retailers like Whole Foods are opening, you know, mm-hmm. 20% store count a year. So being in right. a good restaurant chain can really drive volume. Um, and, of course, yep. That will help the retail business um, if, if branded in the awareness as well. No, and it's interesting for you because, you know, like the size of the prize is significantly bigger than it is in a lot of ways for a lot of other categories. And that's just reality in the sense that, you know, I can't think of a restaurant high or low that doesn't have some version of a chicken salad, you know, do you want the Caesar with chicken, you know? Yeah. I mean, and it's just, it's just, you know, you want it with shrimp, chicken or daring, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's, it's, that's just, a simple add on. I mean, Bluestone Lane, if you're familiar yeah. with that chain recently mm-hmm. launched um, nationally with them as an add on. And we were at Soho house. We're an add on, a protein add on. And yeah. You know, you want to take shrimp one day, you want to take chicken one day, or, or, or like you said, add daring, substitute chicken for daring. I mean, yep. it is a really exciting story. It's the story we tell in food service. We can deliver, you know, the same experience for chefs, back of house. Yes, Operationally, we can minimize labor because there's no quality control issue with undercooking our product. Because, yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's already safety. cooked in production. Yeah. Exactly. And we have a cooked product now that's ready to eat. So it's quite simply just heat it up for 30 seconds um and you can you can actually add incremental incremental dollar spend because often these restaurants are um paying a little bit more for our product and actually charging the cook consumer more as well so mm-hmm. from a business perspective for the restaurant it can it can be um incremental um dollar spend and incremental lift within consumers they're not appealing to today so um i think you know, whether it be daring or whether it be someone else, I think restaurants should always have something 
um, uh, to 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 uh, avoid missing out on that vital vote. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, if I can't eat some sort of plant-based option, then rarely I can go to that restaurant with my friends right. who all eat meat and chicken and fish, and they probably won't change. But um, yeah, we 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 really excited about the the growth and food service. We we just launched a a test in Starbucks, um, and you know, excited to see that hopefully. Um, grow Is it and like and a develop. sandwich or a salad or it's or? uh we we launched a yeah. uh, egg bite with just egg um so oh, it's cool. a, a chicken chicken and egg um it's uh-huh. a chicken sausage and egg uh sous vide um, egg bite with uh, our partnership with cuisine solutions and we launched a chicken sandwich so focaccia bread chicken uh, mayonnaise rocket celery really tasty nourishing very 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 tasty actually it's my it's one of my favorite um, oh, cool. uh, and sandwich. So, um, it's in the DC area. And like I said, we're in a lot of different restaurants over, I think three, 400 right now. And, um, you know, if you fast forward, hopefully 2024, 2025, we expect the food service channel to be, you know, at least 50% of our business. Yeah. I'd like to dig into food service a little bit too, because I think, you know, I generally at this point know that things like trends that I'm seeing for our business tend to be trends that other businesses are also seeing. So when I'm asking sort of a personal question, I feel like it is representative of like, you know, the 2000 people a week who listen to this, but I've gotten, you know, I remember there was a lot of food service inquiry, obviously about, you know, specifically the sauces that are labor intensive for back of house. Chimichurri isn't a ton of ingredients, for instance, but you do have to be able to mince all of those different herbs. There is a technique to it. You know, it's labor intensive. Romesco, you're roasting peppers, you're blending them. Um, We've had, you know, restaurants say they just, they've tried and they can't quite get, you know, the flavor, the consistency that we do, which obviously makes me very happy. But would yeah. you say that when you are, again, sort of similar to the question about how you're essentially trying to, to partner with co-packers, you know, you said part of the pitch to restaurants and food service is when you put the daring name on it, it's a 10 to one in terms of like sales. Yeah. You also mentioned that we're saving you labor by having this product be fully cooked and there's no, you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, temperature checks and salmonella. How, is that, are those basically like, how else would you evaluate or I guess build out, you know, if you're an early stage, like what would you recommend? Because we are starting to hear more and more restaurants are getting their mojo back we're getting more inquiries for sure. But I think a lot of us are, again, we only have so many resources and right now we're like, okay, but we make this five ounce pouch and like, we hear you that a pillow pack would be helpful for you, but we almost don't know exactly how to think about it. And on the flip side, how to kind of get it over the line with potential partners. So just, yeah, that's a constant, that's the constant struggle that anyone with, um, you know, I would say a great product and aggressive ambition might have. I mean, fundamentally, any decision is really going to be risk to reward. And, you know, the size of the prize, mm-hmm. time, you know, divided by the operational complexity is kind of something we go through every day. You know, mm-hmm. you know how big is the opportunity and how big is the lift? And if the opportunity yeah. is, is substantial and needle moving, for us, we put a monetary value on the annualized opportunity. If, if it's over you know, let's just say X million dollars, we will, we'll make the effort. If it's smaller, mm-hmm. you know, I can't really pull in my, you know, you know, let's say R and D team, cause they're working on other innovation that we've underwritten and signed off on. It's further through mm-hmm. the stage gate um, and pull in supply chain and pull in, you know, operations and pull in finance to do the costing. And obviously the opportunity for us is worth, you know, X, tens of thousands of dollars it needs to make sense now if you've underwritten the opportunity to be substantial and for you that might be and i'm talking things for the listener that might be Mm -hmm. uh you know 10 percent of the business uh, if this goes well it's probably worth doing it you know at the end of the day Mm -hmm. we got approached 
we were in a 12 pack case. Walmart asked us for a six, six pack case for us. That size of the prize in 4,000 stores and four SKUs, it made sense for mm-hmm. us to go and back to our coma and say, hey, we need to change our outer case size. Right. Um, but I think one of the things that is great, and I would say kudos to my team, specifically my COO, Jeffrey Kendallman, um, he that constant push and pull of me saying, yes, 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 let's do mm-hmm. it, and pulling <laughs> back and saying, let's look at the numbers here. Let's look at the lift. Right. What are the resources required? And actually saying not not right now doesn't make sense, and and that's what you know the benefit of having a great team is, and yeah. um, it's kind of your job and my job to push and continue to push and squeeze and and bring these yeah. opportunities to the team. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about um, we have my my team is here for like our sort of team week for Q one, and I everyone who listens to the podcast regularly knows that we have um, these like user guides about ourselves. You know, I, this is how I like to operate. This is how I like to communicate. These are the things that I might do that will annoy you. These are the things that you could do that would possibly annoy me. And we just all go over them every time we're all together per quarter. If we've made any changes, if there are new people on the team, et cetera, it just keeps us kind of, you know, it just keeps things from getting weird when they don't have to, because I think a lot of founders tend to be that sort of extroverted. I see this vision, you know, we can make everything happen. And I think a lot of, you know, operations and logistics folks tend to be, you know, into the analysis and maybe not as, um, they don't use their hands when they talk as much. And, you know, it can feel sometimes like there's, you're yucking my yum, you know, when you're a founder and operations folks are like, well, you know, I know you want to make this product with all these amazing ingredients at an 80% margin, but here's the reality, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But it's such an important, I think that's where the magic of really good businesses lays. You know, when you have really good trusting, good communication, that team is able to say, we get it. We get why you want to do it. Let's maybe yeah. think of something we can offer instead. You know, yep. like we don't want to like sell the whole boat. Maybe we can just sell them part of the boat. Um, yeah. and, and that communication I think is really important. And I think people are struggling with that too, because so many people are remote and mm-hmm. teams are changing and people are all over the place and, yeah. You know, I guess on that note, aside from him being great, what have you learned in terms of communicating mm. with the ops team or anyone really for that matter over the last couple of years that you think has been a good lesson for you? Yeah, you've touched on a few good points and, you know, obviously work closely with, with that individual. I would say that my whole team are, are excellent. We have a very high performance culture and I'm okay saying that. I think um it starts with you uh, i think the founder always dictates the pace and what the culture is um mm-hmm. and i think it's okay to sort of be intense but respectful um at the end of the day we are not here to necessarily you know please everyone we're here on a mission and, and there's very little daylight between that but i think you know you touched mm-hmm. on the, the the words you know communication transparency laying out the plan um knowing where you want to be um, vocal, knowing which rooms and tables you want to be at and where the final say-off goes. I give mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of, um, um, I would say, responsibility to my team managers, directors, whatever role you are. We're very flat as an organization. And I think the mm-hmm. ability for my team within certain sandboxes to just go with it um, is something that you know I feel has been successful for us. I, I don't necessarily need to have say here and here but when it comes to innovation and when it comes to you know right. um a certain strategy on marketing i, I will yeah. be driving that conversation with you and yeah uh, and executing it so um i think it's it's about understanding which plates you want to spin which ones you want to hire other people to make the decisions and then giving them the freedom and responsibility to do that no one yeah. likes to be watched over all the time and often you're hiring people that are far more experienced and talented yeah. than you as a founder but one thing you cannot do 
is forget that you built this thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very fine juggle between not getting bogged down between the 20, 30 years experiences looking left and right in a room and saying, well, they know more than me, but what it takes to build a business, what it takes to be an entrepreneur, what, what it takes to you know risk it all and go again and go mm-hmm. again. And there's something to be said with that. So, yeah. you know, I see my responsibility is strategy, raising capital, hiring great people and setting the pace. Yeah. And then Cash, you know, sure people, vision. Yeah. 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 And and that's it. Yeah. Um, but we, we're, we're, we have a great team. It's interesting because sometimes I feel almost the, I feel like the issue sometimes for me, isn't that I micromanage. Sometimes I feel like people are like, but what do you want it to be? And I feel like I have like this very big long-term vision. I know exactly where I want it to be in, you know, three to five years. I know exactly the categories I think we belong in, how I want to show up for the consumer. But I feel like the way that my brain works is a little bit like I reverse engineer, you know, I remember writing papers in high school and being like, all right, this is what I need to get to. So reading the book with that in mind, and it's just a way that I, my brain works. So I don't really, you know, sometimes I'll say, well, what are the specific things that you want in here? And I'll be like, I, you know, I don't know what my options are in a way (laughs) like, and that comes up sometimes where it's not, it's not that I'm lording over in a way, it's the opposite where I feel like sometimes people are looking to me for a little bit more. Um, and I'm, I feel sometimes like I'm not, and I don't have strong conviction about everything. I have conviction (laughs) about certain things, you know? Yeah. And it's a, it's, I'm, I'm smiling here, um, because it's definitely something I think, uh, I feel as well. Um, you know, longer term, definitely, you know, I, I think, you know, often it's harder for me to get really granular and think about right, right now. I do spend a lot of time thinking about kind of the, the, the next stepping stone. I, mean, I don't think you ever want to lose that as, as a founder. Someone's got to think next. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, conviction is, is harder when you go from being 100% of the workforce to being 1% of the <laughs> workforce in my, in, in right. my, uh, in, in my instance. So you have other people, other opinions, uh, whether they're vocal or they're whispers or whatever, right. you, there's more people with opinions and, you know, often you second guess yourself and you kind of yeah. look to them and, and so on. But, um, yeah, it's definitely something that I think most founders feel and certainly, um, are, I'm sympathizing with what you're saying there. Um, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, it's what we signed up for, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that Keely and I have been doing, my ops person and I are like, okay, there's, it's like total decision-making versus decision-making with some input versus, you know, shared essentially like creating systems around these things so that every time there's a decision, we kind of have the way that we make it. Some decisions yeah. I really don't even want to know about. Honestly, yeah. if I never hear the word mirin again, I will be happy and, you know, <laughs> how, solve it however the hell you can. Let me know if like we're really going to miss something other than that, you know, fit, I don't whatever. Um and you know, and and I think it's just like creating the communication channels for this stuff. And I mean, to your point, you went from a hundred percent to 1%. I went from, you know, a hundred to 20 or whatever it is. I don't know how to do percentages, but I do think that it's creating the systems of the communication that will solve it, which is, you know, hopefully what we just continue to do. I have to ask you in the last couple minutes, we have to talk about, you know, who, (laughs) (laughs) because not everyone can get a kardashian let's just you know it's it's very cool um a huge marketing just campaign beautiful really well done and i just kind of want anything you can say about it you know high level thoughts 
detailed thoughts, all of it. Like, tell me, just tell me yeah. about it. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, I was, it was definitely a question I get asked about. And obviously when you work with such, um, well-recognized, um, individuals, specifically Courtney, um, catches a lot of attention and, and fundamentally, I think that was the part of it. Um, to give you the background, you know, Travis and Courtney, um, we're fans of the fans of the product, fans of the brand, and we have a, a mutual uh, contact that actually is very close to her, and was able to organically create the opportunity for us to really, you know, talk about the mission and the product and where we wanted to take the brand, and it made a lot of sense for them, and it made a lot of mm-hmm. sense for us. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a very small category. We touched on that. Not many people are are buying plant based chicken. Um, right. You and I talk about it. We live in a bubble of plant based CPG, right. but. Not many people do. It's a several hundred million dollar industry. So mm-hmm. our main focus here and our main objective was to create some excitement, create some opinions, uh, and create overall awareness. Whether you loved it, whether you didn't, whether you didn't care, or whether you didn't see it, billions of people did. Mm-hmm. And it was um, a partnership in, in multiple stages that we'll see play out that was extremely organic that we were very fortunate enough to do and it happened very quickly. Um, and it's, we've seen some, some great success from it. Our retail numbers are up retailers are, if not even more excited to see what we can offer and bring to the table. Um, right. we're making plant-based, hopefully a little bit cooler, a little bit sexier, a little bit more, uh, I would say, uh, exciting and a bit more lifestyle than just mm-hmm. plant-based meat. Um, right. and, um, you know, I think we're trying to move the needle here and we're trying to uh, push, push, push the ball forward and, you know, take some good shots on net and hopefully something will stick. So it was an awesome yep. opportunity. It was my wife's um, uh, decision <laughs> to use them. I had a few names and I was uh, fortunate enough to have a few conversations and she, she said, you know, these, this would, this would be awesome work with them. So right. I think given their plant-based uh, lifestyle, given Travis's yep. long-term um, mm-hmm. you know, vegan diet, it made a lot of sense. And we now sell in Monty's, which he's a big part of in LA. And, um, it's, it's been a great partnership. And just going back to sort of like the retail numbers, you know, we also mm-hmm. talk a lot about the difference between awareness and, you know, I think a lot of brands in the last several years have, have focused, maybe tell me if you agree or not, like a little bit overly indexed on awareness, um, which if you're not available, whether it's direct or in like a lot of retailers, it almost feels like it goes into the ether. Like we have people who are like, we can't find you anywhere. Like, where are you? Um, because I mean, and we don't even have that kind of awareness. And then I think about some where they've put, um, they've, you know, a celebrity or an influencer or something sort of lends themselves to something. And I would imagine that there's a boost, maybe it drives some trial. Um, but did you have metrics around, you know, if, if it's an awareness campaign alone and, and that's, it's an impressions question, yeah. You know, that's great. But did you did you tie it to any other sort of deeper or more lift or any retail metrics or is it just too hard to do because there are too many variables, you know, whether it's a you know, a sale or beginning of the year, new year, new me or whatever, you know, whatever. Like are there links or no? You know, it's very there's very little data to show why someone buys the product at a target or right. whole foods. Um, we obviously can measure the, the lift that month on, you know, a promotion or any activity that you're doing out of home or other or digital, but we don't sell online. So for her, you know, right. we didn't see a, a spike of like consumers going yeah. from that digital ad through our website and then buying online where obviously you can measure the metrics, but, of course, the month and the months after and the base business jumped significantly following that campaign. We went from 0.2 or 3 household penetration to, um, I think, 2%, roughly, So wow. um, right. at the time. So there was a significant less in household penetration. There was also a lift in velocity 
and mm-hmm. um, and I think the conversations that we were able to have, and yep. this is not a success metric. This is not a metric that any founder or any business should measure um, a great business and not build a business on. I want to double click on that. Mm-hmm. But I would say there was a couple of no's. Those no's became it turned into yeses. Yeah, very quickly yeses. That this is a brand that's willing to invest um, mm-hmm. in uh, in in building awareness. And if I am able to stock this product, then there's a chance that you know that demographic might come, and I'm trying to get after that demographic mm-hmm. right now. Um, so um, yeah, you know, all good. Those go are like it. five good sort of you know. <laughs> KPIs, if you want to call it that, around any marketing campaign or partnership or anything, really. Like, yeah, you're, you know, but don't don't spend the money until you have the distribution, the total distribution yeah. points. It right. is, it is, it is money down the drain. We waited till we were in uh, 37, 38,000 TDPs, uh, 10,000 right. stores, eight, 9,000 stores. I wish we were in more at the time, but that was, that was when it landed. And, um, and if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have done it. Um, uh, fundamentally right. when you were in Walmart, pretty much everyone can get you and we, yep. we were so. Yeah, no, that's great. Super, super great tactical advice. Ross, thank you. Um, I feel like I, I don't know if you expect <laughs> I feel like it was very hardcore from like the minute, like we said, hello, but, um, you know, people are really, there's a lot of, um, I don't know. I think early stage brands are definitely feeling pressure and the more we can try to give them, I don't know, experiences that might help them make good decisions or at least think about the way they make the decisions. I'm hoping that this is helpful. So I, I really so appreciate too. it. Are you, are you sweating or are you exhausted? No, uh, no, <laughs> I, this is, this is the stuff we talk about every day internally. I talk about it externally. Um, but uh, no, thank you for, for diving awesome. in. I think it's important that we, we touch on these points. Yes. Um, Liam, I just, everyone, you're so used to me saying like, thank you, Armin, but it's Liam. Liam is our new engineer. So Liam, I want to thank you so much for engineering today's episode. Um, I think I'm going to be out for a couple of weeks, so I might not have another episode in the next week or so, but I certainly will be back with another episode of In the Sauce. Thanks for listening. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.